This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 11th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Perhaps it was always a bit too much to ask, but this election season is less about ideas, about debating the purpose of government, and more about finding scapegoats for social problems and childish gestures aimed at showing strength. Witness the two leading presidential candidates with their embarrassing track records on issues from freedom of speech to war powers. Ben Dominich, publisher at The Federalist, joined us to talk about this relatively substance-free election season. If you've got one, it's mea culpa time. Did you see this coming? Um, I saw it coming in August. Uh, that's when I wrote the white identity politics piece that said he was unlikely to win, but that if he did win, it would indicate that the Republican Party you know, no longer was a classically liberal party in any sense. And I got pushback at the time from a lot of people who were more Trump curious. Uh, and uh, and many of them have since written and said, yeah, you were right about that. And Ace of Spades wrote a long thing about it and that kind of thing. And so I didn't see him. I did not think that he would win until uh, until Rubio didn't get out before Florida. And then I started to say that he was more likely to win. Very broadly, this is this is this conversation we're having is a conversation that's taking place all over Washington D.C. in the broad, big part of the United States right now, which is you know, what do we have in terms of political parties, which have a long for a long time have just been uh, agglomerations of sets of opinions about things. We can't really count on the Democrats to protect what we have long considered to be uh, social, associational freedoms. We can't really depend on Republicans anymore to defend uh, reduced spending, the idea that um, you know you're, what you are entitled to as a human uh, is limited. In some way, so what do we have now? We have essentially a democratic coalition that looks increasingly corporatist, uh, and that has gotten rid of all of the principles of social liberalism that actually had to do with liberty, and replaced them uh, with a series of entitlements that they believed are owed to everyone, and that everyone must uh, pay for. Uh, on the part of all f- all different areas of your life, and then on the right, you have a coalition that looks a lot more open to the ideas of economic nationalism, of xenophobia, of populism that demands larger government uh, and particularly larger government expenditures, technocratic management of exactly, the economy, exactly, and basically uh, has gotten rid of the idea that the people ought to be trusted with uh, governing themselves and instead uh, fallen prey to the idea that a strong man is needed to come in and uh, fix everything for everyone, which if there's any analog to that that you can find you know, around the world, is it's comparable to the situation in Mexico where you have far fewer institutions that are trusted by people, um, that are between the mob and the uh, and the person in power, and so instead, whenever anything happens, 
instead of the people working together to solve it on their own, uh, the irony is that the distrust of government leads to more government because they call for more powers invested in the strong man to come in and fix everything. Which has been true in the United States uh, for some time as well. Mm -hmm. And that's a situation that unfortunately has led us to neither party really being about personal or economic liberty at the core of what they talk about on a, on a consistent basis. They just aren't. And that's, <laughs> that's a very sad state of affairs. For we have two candidates for President of the United States, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, each of which seem to be defined by uh, very little in terms of you know, th this uh, mm -hmm. a core, a coherent core idea, yes. which despite the fact that most voters typically are themselves agglomerations of opinions that may or may not be particularly well thought out, mm -hmm. You at least expect candidates to have uh, that. We have gotten used to the idea that candidates are supposed to believe certain things and that those beliefs are what animates them and what drives them. Instead, I think what we see in Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are two candidates who are absolutely willing to say anything to either on the one hand win, which may not involve winning an election, but winning in the sense of advancing your own brand. Uh, or power in terms of actually seizing and, and operating the levers of power. I was asked a while back about um, when I was uh, on uh, by Joe Scarborough what I thought about as the one-line summation of the Clinton campaign, and I, I, my response was she just wants to be in the room where it happens, <laughs> which is the line from Hamilton uh, by said by Aaron Burr. Because the point of which is, he doesn't really care what happens in the room or what the policy that comes out of it is. He doesn't really care about the principles of statesmanship or the need to have leaders who listen to the people. He just wants to be in that room. That's the most important thing. And that's what's true of Hillary Clinton, and I think it's mostly what's true of Donald Trump. Where do you see revolt against this idea? I mean, obviously... Yeah. Uh, I work at the Cato Institute, so I get to work within this bubble of uh, people who think a lot like I do about how the world ought to work. But where do you see revolt from people who do not live and work in Washington, D.C.? I think there is revolt. The Ted Cruz portion of the Republican Party, which is made up primarily of very ideologically conservative people, uh, many of whom played key roles in the Tea Party movement. Uh, was a connection between both them and a handful of more libertarian, uh, Rand Paul-supporting types of Republicans, and a handful of uh, evangelical social conservatives who see in the aftermath of uh, the latest round of the culture wars uh, a need to fight for religious liberty and for their personal freedom. That's a coalition that is real and I think makes up a portion of the Republican electorate. But it's very obvious that this sorting that has happened over the course of the past uh, several years in the wake of really the 2008 election where you saw a lot of the Democrats who supported Hillary Clinton disappointed in the choice of Obama, disappointed in a new coalition in which working class white voters were passed over for younger voters, for urban voters, and for uh, the elites, uh, that they felt left out. So I think there is a portion of the country that believes in 
personal liberty and that believes in limited government, that believes that we need to spend less, and that frankly was open to Ted Cruz's message that generally we should not be an interventionist power, that we should be pulling back from that as a whole, as a whole and that we should not be uh, getting into everyone's business when it came to foreign affairs. I think they were also open to hearing that from Trump. Those are all positive signs that this is not a, a nation that is entirely in the sway of, of you know, a corporatist party or a nationalist party. But that's still the minority. And I think we learned in this cycle how small that minority really is in the sense that uh, there are people who are who have perhaps been under the impression that conservatism as a whole, the base that was frustrated with President Obama, was motivated by ideology, was motivated by the beliefs they had about the pocket constitutions they were carrying. Uh, and yes, that's true. There was a portion of them that was that. But then there was also a portion that I think was really just driven by animosity towards Obama, uh, towards his policies, towards Obamacare. And the effect of this is that we're left with uh, an American politics that is responsive to uh, two major events above all, and that is the, the disastrous consequences of the Iraq war and the disastrous consequences of the financial crisis, from which we've never, in my view, fully recovered. And on both of those questions, the Republican Party, as a coalition, needed to learn a lesson in the last eight years about what they took away from it, and they didn't. So what you end up with is a conservative ideological path with Ted Cruz, a Bush 2.0 path with Marco Rubio, and then a much more broad, appealing message of nostalgia about getting back to the times when things were great from Donald Trump. And it turns out nostalgia wins. There is an effort in Congress that's being discussed right now. And I, I, I persist in the belief that there's never been a better time for Congress as a branch of government to reassert its primacy. Those, part, part, uh, those powers in Article One are in Article One for a reason. Uh, and... Uh, it seems like there there isn't even that much appetite on Capitol Hill to assert from the executive branch, uh, the celebrity branch, if you will, that those powers that include war, that uh, include uh, the controlling the purse, that include even the ability to decide what a certain law means in many cases. Do you think there's any appetite for that? There's a small amount of appetite for it, and that appetite is going to grow, I think, uh, in no matter which of these candidates ends up in the Oval Office, assuming that it is either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. The pressure on Congress uh, when dealing with President Obama was unique in a lot of ways. Uh, obviously, I think the Congress had a mix of personalities in it including a number of people who were holdovers from the 1990s, uh, the 94 uh, Republican uh, uh, Revolution that brought in John Boehner, uh, that, uh, you know, where John Boehner was part of the leadership team and where that brought in a lot of the uh, members of Congress who were in senior positions. And in those ways, they were hampered by the lessons that they took from dealing with Bill Clinton and I think took a, the lesson that whenever they were going to be aggressive in asserting the congressional powers that they had a president on the other end who would benefit. 
instead, I think they basically recoiled from that. And right now, you have a Republican leadership that at least has, as a matter of generational shifts, gone to a Paul Ryan, who on the day that we're speaking is actually saying that uh, he can't uh, endorse Donald Trump yet because he doesn't really know what his agenda is. And uh, compared to someone like Mitch McConnell in the Senate, who has said he will already support Donald Trump, uh, who, again, is a holdover from the old ways of doing things, when politics was uh, a little less uh, confrontational, when you had Supreme Court justices who weren't getting filibustered, uh, when you had you know, an era in which uh, there was uh, much less of that willingness to go to battle. But there's a strong argument to be made that that old way of doing things was the primary problem. Yes. That is, when we agreed on everything, we were making things a lot worse like exactly. on, on matters of spending uh, across the board. There's no question that the fact that enabled the, the Republican years under President Bush to be such an increase of government spending was because they agreed on what that agenda ought to be. But when it comes to the willingness of Congress to confront the next president over uh, these Article I powers, over reasserting their role, I do think that's a silver lining to the nature of both of these candidates, that given that they are so unpopular with the American uh, electorate as a whole, given that they are viewed as people who um, are just about using the levers of power, there is some silver lining to the idea that no matter who is elected, there will be a motivating factor for Congress uh, to rein them in. The question is, particularly in the person of Donald Trump, does that even matter? <laughs> does he even listen? Does he pull an Andrew Jackson and encourage the Supreme Court to enforce its own law? Uh, and th that's something that I think we we might you know pretend is is not a possibility. But you know, frankly, I I don't know exactly how to predict anything about how he would respond to such a such a matter. The first time that he disagrees with Mitch McConnell, does he just spend the entire day tweeting about turtles? I mean, this is the this is someone who is very unpredictable when it comes to how they would uh, use the the reins uh, if they were in that office. When it comes to Hillary Clinton, I think that there's a, a bit more predictability there, but. Her priorities line up pretty pretty well with what the status quo has been under Obama. It's just more of it. Uh, it's just more expenditures in these directions, uh, more approaches to, you know, using drones to wipe out people from the sky. And you know, the the real shifts there are ones of degree because again, she's animated more by the pursuit of power. So, is there an incentive for Congress to do it? Yes. As, as a matter of if they have the stones to do it, I think it almost takes moving into that next generation of leaders simply for the old guard who still think that everybody in the Senate ought to be polite to each other and it's the worst thing in the world to call another senator a liar goes away. There may be another silver lining we've seen in states, the willingness to pass laws that uh, do not agree necessarily with, with federal laws on pot and, and other things. And there seems to be a real appetite in states to continue moving in, in that kind of direction. And as far as Congress is concerned, and as far as the president's law enforcement capabilities are concerned, they've sort of stepped back a little bit. And there, it, these, these aren't matters of law necessarily. They may be matters of optics or uh, PR. Uh, 
But there is at least an understanding that uh, when a state decides to do something, Congress sort of has to at least respect that to some extent. I think that's mostly about PR. I think it's mostly about the, the current context of things. But you are right in the sense that there, there are trends moving across the country where people are asserting their ability to self-govern in, in certain ways. That is not absent from this current discussion. The problem that I have is that I think that that's increasingly going to be a matter that depends on the whims of whoever is in power. Right, because none of this has been made a matter of federal law. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of choosing not to enforce things yes. that are on the books. And that is a risky circumstance. Um, the the thing that really I'm most curious or, or I, sh I should say concerned about when it comes to the Trump and Clinton presidencies uh, are the conversation related to speech. And I mean all matters of speech, so not just college campuses and you know the pressure over Title IX that we've seen impact the conversation over when does a uh, slightly risque joke become sexual harassment for which one needs to be expelled, or uh, but also speech within the context of the corporate world. It's one thing when vice presidents of companies are punished for their political donations or the opinions that they had, which may have been the majority opinion 10 years ago and the minority opinion today. Um, it's another thing when uh, when ESPN is getting rid of hosts because they say things that they find objectionable. The concern I have is actually what happens for, to the people who are many tiers down. It's not to Kurt Schilling, it's to Kurt Schilling's secretary. It's the people who have no real defense or ability to you know, use uh, uh, public pressure to to uh, find a new job or to find a new path, it's that there's all of this pressure right now on uh, you know within this uh, within the current American environment to cram down on speech that is no longer viewed as merely an expression of opinion, but as something that is dangerous that makes a space not safe uh, that leads to all kinds of speech codes and the you know the recognition of things as thought crimes. These are things that are very un-American in the way that they are actually uh, uh, laid out. They're, if anything, they're understood as being something that's of the old left. Uh, you know, when when uh, uh, you, you, when you look at it, my concern is that Hillary Clinton has one of the worst records on free speech of any candidate who's ever run for the presidency. She's just terrible on it. Uh, Reason had an excellent cover uh, article on this a few uh, a while back, and then. Uh, on the other side, Donald Trump believes in free speech for himself, but not very so much. free. Very free, very free. Uh, he says the best words. <laughs> People tell him that all the time, uh, and uh, and he doesn't find it quite as appealing in others. He wants to make it easier to file libel suits against uh, newspapers he doesn't like. He says things about other candidates like it's terrible that he's allowed to say that. And my concern is that with both of these. Uh, candidates, uh, we could see a significant crackdown in those regards, which is one of the reasons why I hope one of the areas that states really step up in the next couple of years is pushing back against those types of barriers. The the regulatory uh, uh, administrative state that uh, the Justice Department has run over college campuses when it comes to these areas recently put out something saying that basically any unwanted uh, 
a speech with sexual content in it, which can be a very low threshold, uh, should be viewed as harassment and needs to be litigated and prevented within the colleges. And that type of command is the sort of thing that shuts down free speech in exactly the kind of area that we want speech to be as free as possible, which is within this realm of education. And, uh, and that's an area that I'm very concerned about under either of these candidates. Ben Dominich is publisher at The Federalist. This month marks 10 years of the Cato Daily Podcast. Subscribe and share at cato.org slash podcast.